Greetings, folks, and welcome to Farther Beyond Metal, the Far Beyond Metal side podcast thingy. I'm your host and guide on this metal journey, Daniel Cordova. We're doing another one of our Farther Beyond Metal Ghost of Theater episodes or movie club or whatever I called these things. I've had too many podcasts where I call things too many things, and that's what we're looking at here. Anyway, joining me for this episode, I've got Zach Shaw and Matt Gamba from the Epic Footnote Productions podcast. Uh, I gave these guys a shout out a while back when I appeared on their show when we were talking about new metal. Uh, gentlemen, how have you been since we last met? How are you now? How are things? Fine and dandy. Oh, it's just been great. I can't believe it. Actually, I really can't believe it's been so long since we talked about the most important topic in the world, new metal. Yeah, of course. And since then, I, I kind of feel like we helped open the door a little more for new metal to f- make its comeback a bit more. Because since then, Mudvayne. Oh, I'm United, taking credit for it. Yeah. Mudvayne yeah, United. Well, Limp Bizkit dropped another album that apparently people really like. Uh, so, honestly, world, you're welcome. Am I living in a parallel universe? Where the hell well, did that happen? Well, uh, not to do a shameless plug on our show, but Please. if you listen to our episode of Two Minutes Review on Limp Bizkit's latest album, Still Sucks, you'd hear us very much disagree with that last comment. But. <laughs> Beside, <laughs> look, I didn't. I didn't get it. I'm. I. Uh, I have a soft spot. I think we talked about this. I like have a soft spot in my heart for Limp Bizkit from way back. I don't need that. We now. all do. I don't need that now, though. Like, of course, we have. I don't to. need a new album for yeah. them. See, System of a Down. Get it? They no. haven't put out shit in like 15 years because no one really wants new System of a Down. But you know what, though? Actually, it's funny. It took me a while to accept the fact that I don't want new System of a Down. For because for a while I was holding out because I I still love System of a Down, but really, like it took me a while to be like, no, 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 they're never going to release it. And even when they did release those two new songs, I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't need a new a full album of this. If this you is you can listen to I'm our writing. full thoughts on that <laughs> on another episode <laughs> of a different podcast, on any streaming, any streaming platform, just saying, all um, right. But yeah, it is. I think what you're trying to say is that it's our, the three of ours' fault that new oh. metal is having a surge over the past year and a half. So you're welcome, America. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a band now where I do slap bass uh, in metal. So I'm part of the problem. Well, if you're not doing slap bass, then what are you doing? Do the guitars have at least seven strings? You know, one of our guitars has a seven string. He has yet to bring it. Uh, but so it's, then it doesn't count yet. Our, uh, the other guy, he used to have an eight string because he was really into periphery, but I don't think that ever. Oh, oh he was one of those guys, huh? Mm. I think I, I know why he sold it. I said I didn't want to play Gent, and then it was just gone. <laughs> <laughs> you broke his heart. I think I did. Honestly, I think I did. I might cut this out. I, Ryan, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> this stays in. <laughs> but uh, needs thank to know. Thank you for coming on my podcast, gentlemen. This thanks is a long time for having coming. us. I've been wanting yeah. to find excuses. Yeah, thanks for having us. On. Uh, so here we are. We're talking about the um, first metallic. Uh, I guess we could call it. Now I'm second guessing myself because this live shit count. Matt, uh, on your podcast, where uh, I want to get the thing right. If you have mm-hmm. to pick three, uh, you shout out yep. Metallica as your favorite band. Uh, is Saint yes. is uh, some kind of monster Metallica's first movie? If you consider all the other stuff, or do you? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, hold on. Didn't they make I, a documentary about them recording the Black Album, or was well, that they've, not? This was a, their first theatrical release. Well, hang. There's okay. So there's a bunch of different Metallica things that they've done. They always tend to do like a documentary recording of an album. So yeah, they did 
a recording of the black album and that's you know famous for you know when uh when james yells at uh bob rock and tells me if you want to hear the lyrics and you sing it um but i don't consider that to be a movie yeah. this was actually a very I want to say for documentaries, a very well done documentary on Metallica, and it did receive a theatrical release. So yeah, I would say it is the technically first their first movie. Although it's again not to get too ahead of ourselves, it's ironic because it was not intended to be. It literally was supposed to be just a hey, let's capture us making an album for the first time in many years, and then the directors got a hell of a surprise. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I imagine like there are so many albums that put out like a DVD where it's like a half hour of them making the songs. It really seemed like it was going to be that at first and then just it Mm -hmm. went off the rails. Anyway, we're talking about some kind of monster. I don't think I actually said it yet. The 2004 (laughs) uh, Metallica movie where everything falls apart and they decided to record it and then kept recording it. Uh, It has an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes as of looking last night, which is way higher than I was expecting. But I, I... Wow, that's shocking. I think it's a fairly well-regarded documentary, but it is an a interesting journey. Before we dive into the movie, um, what is your you guys' background with the movie, with Metallica, with St. Anger, with like this time in this band, I guess? So I'm going to do a humble brag Please. right now. Um, I actually got to... The first time I got to see this movie was with one of the directors, um, Bruce Sanofsky. Uh, he actually passed away a few years ago, but it was shortly after, it was making like the festival rounds, I think. And Rutgers University in New Jersey was hosting a movie festival or a documentary festival. And one of the big name titles that they had was Some Kind of Monster. And I remember me and my parents, because at that point I was slowly getting into age of actually going to concerts. I had just seen Metallica live for the first time the year prior, even getting to meet them. That's another brag that I'll talk later about. Um, just dropping the brags. <laughs> um, and my parents were like, yeah, this is exciting. Let's go see this movie. And they were advertising the fact that a director was going to be there too. So cool. And I still remember how walking into what could not have been anything but like a 30 person classroom on the, on a college campus. Like we thought we were going to go to like this like big theater and it was like a bare bones classroom with like a projector pulled down and like maybe five other people were there. And I could even tell like as a director was coming, he was like, wait, this is it. I'm the co-director of Metallica's official documentary. And this is the festival that we organized. He, and he was cool. Like he did a Q and a afterwards and he, it became a really cool, just in-depth chat with him about the movie and just getting his, like even him revealing, like, yeah, we really didn't realize what we were doing until James went to rehab. Um, and so it was just cool to be able to like, see it on a screen. Cause I think that's always, especially if you think about like in the early two thousands, everything was so quick to go to DVD that you kind of just waited for DVDs for like certain music related projects. So to see it on a screen and to actually get to talk to one of the guys who created it right after was special. So I think that I always had a soft spot for the movie because of that as well. Did you get to ask him any questions about the process? Like what does Lars smell like? Uh, he was very vocal at the very beginning that he smelled like pickles. It oh. was very, it was, he, that was the first thing he, he's high on Bruce and Laura smells like pickles. I was like, Oh, that's a weird thing to start off with. Sounds right, um, I, I remember, I don't remember 
all the questions. I remember getting to actually talk to him as he was like giving art, like just signing people's bills and, and flyers. He gave me a guitar pick that they used to promote the, the movie with, which was cool. And then we were also talking about how, cause I was like, yeah, I got to actually, you know, meet Metallica last year. And you know, they're actually really cool guys. And it was like, oh yeah, that you lucked out then because he then also told me the story about I mean, the way, the way he actually, they actually got the gig. Those two directors was they did a other documentary about like hunting or something. And they wanted to use a Metallica song. And because James was a hunter, they was like, Oh, let's give it a shot. Maybe he'll accept it. And Metallica agreed to let them use a the song. So fast forward, it was like 2000. They got to go actually meet Metallica. And so they actually went up to James. He was like, you know, James, thank you so much for the approval. And he was kind of just addicted. It was like, whatever. And just, like walked off and he was like yeah you can tell that re- he needed rehab not at that but like you can tell that rehab made him a better person because after our interactions with him after rehab like night and day like it just made him a much nicer person so i thought that was kind of interesting and i think kind of emphasized the need that james need like emphasized how much help james needed at that point in his life matt how, I like I said uh, in your episode, you mentioned Metallica is your favorite band. How is some kind of monster mm-hmm. for you as a Metallica fanboy? So to paint the picture of kind of where I was at this point in time, I was in college and I was working for my college radio station, and I very vividly remember that you know everybody at the the station is trashing on Metallica. And, you know, I'm the guy who's there defending Metallica because I love Metallica. Yeah, they weren't so great on Load and, you know, depending on your thoughts on Reload as well. And then the covers and S&M is like, at some point, Metallica's got to get back to being Metallica. And then they announced St. Anger was coming out. And then I remember going to Best Buy, parking in Best Buy's parking lot, rushing in, getting the album, coming out, putting it in my CD player. And the first time I heard the snare sound. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> this isn't like this the whole time, is it? And then I s- skipped tracks. I was like, oh, no, it is. I don't know if I can listen to this. So fast forward to when they announced the documentary, I was thinking, okay, maybe there's a reason behind this. And maybe I'll get an answer. Didn't get an answer. And I didn't even get what I was thinking I was going to get. I would, thought I was going to get just a straight on, you know, in-depth review of, you know, how they came about the album, how the album was, uh, you know, kind of conceived. And you, you kind of got that, but it really took a backseat to the mental struggles within Metallica. And it was kind of eye-opening from the perspective of, you know, the band did feel obligated to go through and you know make the album because they said that they did and they wanted to and you know finding the whole bass player and everything but it really kind of just went off the rails a little bit for me when they you know got into all the, like the the mental issues of you know what was happening within the band and then James going to rehab and so on um i mean it did give me a great perspective but still i was thinking why are they not talking about the the pink elephant in the room here and how did we arrive at the snare sound why did bob rock let this happen that's all that's all the only question you want answered it was not answered <laughs> right I, I just i if i'm if i'm the one who has to try to defend metallica to everybody who i know because i love metallica 
you're not giving me very much ammo here. <laughs> um, but it did put a, a new perspective on the band for me. Um, it, it was a great documentary for what it was. It just, at the time, it wasn't the answers I was looking for. It's like the answers that you want are not here. You know, it's funny no. though, because I, I actually thought, and maybe this is going to, we'll talk about this a little bit more on, like further, because yeah, I think the first time you heard St. Anger was definitely polarizing. It was definitely not what you maybe were expecting or wanting from a Metallica album. But for me, watching the documentary, I was like, oh, okay. I get why it sounds maybe not the crappy snare, but I kind of understood, like it, it made me realize it was the album that maybe Metallica needed to make at the time. They needed to make an album where literally Lars is just screaming F you into a microphone where they just had yeah, like, so I think in that regards, while maybe they didn't show you how he discovered you can make a snare sound like a trash can. It, it to me gave me a little bit more respect for an album that up until that point, it was definitely on the bandwagon of kind of trashing. Well, they also said that about load and reload in earlier interviews, they said that, you know, those two albums were the albums that Metallica deserved to make after putting out, you know, the Black Album and Injustice for All. You know, they were so kind of pigeonholed into being this heavier and larger than life band that they got the chance to make an album that wasn't that. And they did it twice and blah, blah, blah. So if you're saying that about St. Anger, I don't necessarily buy that. I huh. think St. Anger might have been a byproduct of a pseudo concept of a band meeting for the first time in a garage and it's Metallica and you know the all the struggles that they were going through both mentally and finding new members of the band and finding their identity again um I think you know it was just a a melting pot of everything that they were going through you know kind of put on vinyl and said here you go this is this is what metallica is right now uh well the movie for me like because it came out when i was 15 ish yeah yeah do the math on that 15 or 16 i was just starting to play bass and i liked two things more than anything as far as bass went ozzy osbourne and metallica and they so you were in again. heaven then at that point. Yeah, they mentioned in the mo in the movie what mm -hmm. fucking blew my brain is that they swapped bassists. For years, my favorite bass players were Robert Trujillo and Jason Newstead. Honestly, I still have a really soft spot for the two of them. Uh, I will come back to my feelings on Robert Trujillo later. But Jason Newstead, I like I don't know that guy like made such an impact on me, and I wanted to see the movie for that side of the but i went into the, the i saw this in theaters with my dad and i didn't know what i was getting into i just knew there was a metallica movie and somehow it mentioned the basis stuff it got to the basis stuff eventually but then for it to open on james hetfield just like disappearing in russia on his bailing on his kid's first birthday <laughs> and killing a bear just because it was a very weird shift in like, oh, this, I don't know what I thought this was, but it's not this. And even watching it again this, <laughs> this weekend, it's still not quite what I remember it being because that's how, that is how it starts. And then he just like, that's when he goes into rehab. But um, yeah, getting to the Trujillo stuff, like that's where I, that's what got my ass in the seat. And I just, I don't know, like I was at this like really formative age when St. Anger came out and I got it like 
my local record store at the town I grew up, Barney's Record, Barney's Good Times Music Records and Tapes, RIP, because it's an independent record store. Uh, they got copies in Wednesday when it was supposed to drop on a Friday, and rumor went around town immediately, and people flooded that place and bought them all up. So we had all these like illegal copies of St. Anger, and we hopped in cars or our CD players and put it on. And I didn't have that reaction to the snare drum. I was like, holy shit, it's new Metallica. I've never been like part of the craziness of a new Metallica <laughs> album because I got into them super late and, you know, it already been five years or whatever since load and reload and the covers and everything. So this was like my first rush with new Metallica. So I still kind of have this like weird, like seed in my brain where it's like, ah, yes, that's, that's what helped me when I was 15. I listen to those songs and it's, still font like i have fond memories of them i know they're bad i also love static x <laughs> i know that was bad but saint anger's in that same pocket for me but like sometimes <laughs> even if you're surrounded by a bunch of great italian restaurants sometimes you just need some crappy domino's pizza we get it i, I said no that, one ever uh we i say that a little too often i pitched that for dinner tonight actually but instead we're doing our own thing <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's it's interesting you say that about like that being because I I agree that for me that was the first new Metallica album too like also kind of caught on late because I was young at the time and, and just discovering the band's back catalog and revisiting this movie it kind of blew my mind the realization that when they started filming this it was the band was essentially celebrating their 20th anniversary and if you think about it just this past of uh, a few months ago, they were celebrating their 40th, which means the we're, amount you're of doing time it here too. Anger. Yeah. What was that? You're doing it here. Yeah, too. I'm, gonna, I'm making everyone feel old here. The amount of time <sighs> like that, it took like everything that they've experienced with those in those 20 years before that is kind of like the same amount of time that it took up to now. Like it just kind of blew my, like something about it just like made me feel weird. And even when at one point they were talking about cliff, and he goes, I'm still pissed off. I'm still pissed off 16 years like afterwards. I'm like, wait, it was only 16 years after, like it kind of like when watching that documentary, I wasn't around when Cliff was alive. It didn't like, to me, it was already kind of not old news, but like older news that, you know, Cliff, had, you know, they had a bassist named Cliff who passed away and it marked a big turning point for the band. Like it wasn't fresh in my mind. Whereas like, I feel like if that was to happen now, like I would still think of it as, as yesterday. And like, it just kind of like hit me like, holy crap, that was only six. Of course, James was still messed up. Of course, the band couldn't, you know, was having problems accepting Jason as a band, like a band member. It was only 16 years ago when that happened. Like it was, it kind of just blew my, like, I don't know. I just had like a realization, like, oh my God, like time, you know, time is so short. <laughs> See, I got a little bit of a different perspective than you two on this because the first time that I actually got into Metallica on like the new album train actually was in Load and Reload. Um, Load, not so much. I kind of found it later, but Reload was like, okay, it came out. I remember vividly seeing like Sam Goodies and Coconuts. They had, um, they had like the posters for Reload up and everything. And, you know, I went in there as a, Jesus, how old was I? Uh, You're welcome to mumble if you want. 14? You are many years old. It was 97 that helped you for reload. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like 14, 15, somewhere in there. And I remember getting that album and I was thinking, you know, okay, well, I don't understand why everybody disliked load. I mean, reload is pretty good. I liked it. And then going 
backwards and listening to the rest of the catalog, then it's like, okay, I, I understand it now. But to say that, you know, load and reload are, you know, bad, it's, you know, kind of like everybody jumping on the same, the bad St. Anger bandwagon. It's just, you know, like, like you said, Dan, you know, it was something that you remember very vividly that, you know, it was new Metallica. It was like, oh my God, this, this is so great. And it got, it got you through a time, you know, that's kind of like the same thing with reload for me is that, that got me like hooked on Metallica. And it also, you know, that was kind of like my soundtrack to playing video games back then and playing, uh, I believe it was resident evil two with this on in the background, just on like constant loop. It was my Metallica album. So yeah, I can see where you're coming with, with, uh, with St. Anger. You know, it, you mentioned about just, you know, well, you know, why was so many people giving the hate? I also vividly remember that point that there is definitely a strong hatred for the 90s era. But like, even like there's a group of fans who are like, no, it's only the four first albums. Right. I also very, very remember, and I think this is kind of what ended up dooming St. Anger from the beginning, because I vaguely remember Lars saying in interviews how, yeah, you know, there's definitely an energy on this album that's reminiscent to the first four albums and that got people's expectations <laughs> really high like because that made people think okay so we're like essentially what we ended up getting with death magnetic is what i think people were hoping for of saint anger so that when you got saint anger you were like what the frick is this it's not like you kind of see what he was thinking in regards to like the rawness but like like at- I almost feel like Lars unintentionally doomed the album by just making a comparison. Cause at that point, I think it was a fever pitch where people were like still holding out hope for, even if they, they wouldn't admit holding out hope or holding out hope for like classic era Metallica. Uh, one thing I think is interesting about this movie is kind of the time capsule it is for that era and for what the band was and kind of what they believed in at the time. Cause like a big part of why Jason left that they discussed in the movie is that he felt like he was stifled and was able to do side projects and just sitting around as of this recording today, Kirk Hammett announces so first solo. Yep, that's Which, right. I was actually just thinking about, I was too. thinking about that earlier. Like it's I can't believe be, it's taken this long for him to do it. Right. It, like, I, I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been like a shitty James country album or something, but like the fact that Kirk <laughs> is the coming. first one from like the, essentially the core three to break off and do his own thing. I didn't really see coming and I'm, I'm very curious for it. It's an instrumental album. Like knowing what he's into is going to be a surf album. Guess we'll find out on record store day, but like, I th- mean, maybe he finally got the, the balls to speak up against the other two. I, that's the only thing that I can think of. One thing I think is funny but, about the mm-hmm. album. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please. Uh, in the movie, he's talking about how he's felt silenced for 15 years of the band and he didn't get to contribute. And then he did this and was in on Death Magnetic. He didn't do shit for Hardwired either. Like he had a phone full of riffs that apparently he lost and then wasn't yep. didn't contribute at all to that one either. So it's kind of like he's back there. Mm-hmm. And then for the out this EP to be announced, it's kind of. It's only it's oddly telling for when I watched this movie. Like this is like a, a personal thing for I guess us, the timing of the, all this right now. Because who else is watching San Diego right now? Netflix saw it go three ticks for us, and we're like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but can you imagine? Like, like can you imagine that happening even ten years ago? Like, definitely not twenty years ago. I mean, hell, Bam member left because of it. Like, I got an email from Metallica saying, "Hey, Kirk is releasing." Like. The fact that they're even promoting it just kind of, I think, instantly makes that like, yeah, we get it. You know, we can't, you know, we need to let, you know, 
you got, you know, everyone do a little bit of something on the side and it's not going to take you away from Metallica. There's no way. I mean, going back to the movie, when Lars is having the midlife crisis of watching Jason play Echo Brain uh, or playing live with Echo Brain for the first time, he's like, I just see you now. Everyone's just chanting Echo Brain, Echo Brain. Uh, I think Metallica's realizing like, okay, that's never going to happen, which kind of sideline in a way, you can almost feel like seeing, think that's the closest Lars ever felt to being like Dave Mustaine. Yeah. Which is another great classic scene in that movie too, of, of Lars getting confronted by Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, and even right. Dave flat out saying like, I have never recovered from that. I want to show you guys something. Love the part where he, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, 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 the, the parts. <laughs> I was going to say, I love the part where, uh, Dave finally actually lets out that he just misses his little Danish friend. I wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> that quote is so funny. So that scene is something that's been like a part of my life since this movie came out. My friend, my my guy who's the best man at my wedding and I, we would quote that scene because Dave is just distraught. He's kind of like making his peace sort of. He's still super pissed about it, but he goes, <laughs> people hate me. I fucked up. And the way he says I fucked up has just become like, it's in my lexicon it's i say it all the time how he said it like in a weird mocking way like he i i also kind of wonder what would happen if dave never left but before i move on to that thought uh lars being like echo brain's the future i have that echo brain album that he's on oh wow i got it because of the movie i went i found this shit so hard to find and i still have it because i know it's so hard to find that's how any good uh there's a couple songs i'd listen to now now i'm looking at it spoon fed is pretty cool i'm gonna listen to this later colder world i remember enjoying but it's uh it's it's fine (laughs) it was not taking over metallica i think it's better than jason's solo album newstead uh that weird well yeah because that was him trying to be motorhead meets testament so yeah i can see that like this is definitely an alternative album from the '90s, even though it came out in like 2002 or something. Yep, uh, it's it sounds dated, even though it really was late. Uh, but the thing with like Dave, because I I was telling my wife who was watching this for the first time with me, because she and I saw Metallica at Outside the Land, which is a very weird place to see Metallica, because it's like it's you're getting like Portugal the Man, Bonnie Ver, Beck play. Uh, the weekend headline one year. Uh, but then Metallica, because they're from the Bay Area and half in San Francisco, they'll pop in like every half a decade. Uh, so I wanted her to see this with me and she's like just watching them and she's like, these guys are like various genres of stupid men. And I just, I what are they, what is their problem? Why are they, what are they, what is they, what are they angry about? So they're millionaires now. They had to be millionaires then. And I, she's like watching the scene with Dave Mustaine and couldn't get over the fact that I told him, oh, they kicked him out for being an alcoholic. And she's like, but wait, no. And if they would have <laughs> given Dave the same chance in the 80s, what would Metallica have been? You know, it's interesting yeah. you say that because one of the things I remember after seeing the movie, there's an interview that James did. Um, and he was like, you know, like, because he was being asked about the movie. He's like, you know, what? the one thing I regret about the movie was not being there when, during the Dave Mustaine part. Because it really pissed him off that uh, he was like hawking them. I was like, you know, well, look, James in rehab now. I can't help but think, like, what if, you know, you guys got me to rehab? I wish you gave me the opportunity. And James made the point, was like, we couldn't do rehab. We were not <laughs> like anywhere. Like, we were young kids 
who, you know, we're not in a place to be like, oh, we can, we need to take a break and send you to rehab and to recover. We were like, that wasn't who we were at the time. Like, it's true. They were like, it's kind of hard to, and also let's be clear. It wasn't even necessarily like, oh, you're an alcoholic, get out. It was a, no, you're a mean alcoholic. We're goofy alcoholics. You're a mean alcoholic. <laughs> get it. Like, like, so I, I always found that interesting. And I think that's kind of speaks to how, even though in the movie, it's clear how different James and Lars are as people and how much, even like maybe when they first met, they were actually very different. There is still a sense of brotherhood there that like you have that family member who are like, you know what, if we weren't like family members, we like blood, we probably would have nothing in common, but you have a sense of love there that like, if they're in trouble, you would be there in a heartbeat for them. It was kind of like after seeing them almost at each other's throats, it was kind of heartwarming to read him like would be like no i wish i was there to defend lars you know i think about this in a completely different light than that of course because (laughs) well because the movie in the way that it portrays mental health do you honestly think that back in the early 80s that mental health and the discussions that were being had about that back then were as open as they are now no no of course not right so then this movie really i think if you took the time to watch it really kind of opens your eyes to some of the conversations and things that happen when you go through those types of treatments you know you don't get to see what james goes through but you can only imagine that it's probably some kind of way that you know the rest of the movie is playing out like there's conversations there's deep conversations things that really like i think it was um Kirk that actually says it that you know they don't they don't just stay on the surface they like they they crack you open mm-hmm. and they get that was a great deep. scene mm-hmm. right so when they're talking about that it really kind of opens a lot of people's eyes to what actually happens with you know alcoholism and the treatment and then you know just people being how do I say this the right way people being at odds with each other and trying to get on the same level you know there is a level of therapy that's going on there. So to see that Metallica and the band is going through this therapy and James is going through an even deeper therapy and you look at Dave and what he's saying to Lars while, you know, Lars is trying to get, you know, quote, better with the rest of the band. And he's like, you never gave me that opportunity. Well, if you think about it, you know, maybe they should have, but they were a too young B it was not the right time. And it's, it really just kind of, it really kind of just shows you how far we've come, you know, instead of just kicking somebody out of the band now for being an alcoholic, like James was. You know, it's the way the, what you just said about, it shows how far we come. Cause I think another fascinating thing that I picked up on watching it again recently was you watch moments of even they are still struggling to accept the process to open up you jay when they do interview jason him flat out saying i think this is stupid i think you we shouldn't we can't talk like four guys we need a mod like screw that like he didn't accept the process you even see bob rock who's supposed to be the most influential guy among the guy in the, the men in the studio even he's resistant to a lot of the the techniques or the therapy 
part portions of the conversation. Like even he's just like, guys, we got to go back to work. Like, sorry, like enough of this. Are we in the zone shit? And then even the moment well, when yeah. well, uh, actually, James comes back. Well, hold on. That uh, go ahead. Well, one last thing too, when James comes back and they're trying to accept, or it's maybe day three and they're butting heads because it's like, well, no, no, we have a sketch. We agreed that we're going to work from 12 to four. I have to leave by four. That means you guys should stop working too. And just, you see Lars being like, damn it. I'm trying to understand here, but I hate that you're telling me I can't work. Like it, like even he's just like kind of fighting it as well. Yeah. Well, um, that's, that's another whole thing I can go into that I don't agree with, but that's just me. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, again, but it just, it shows how it's showing for, or, uh, you know, macho men in a way also trying to break themselves open to accepting open conversation. Yeah, I mean, going back to the one scene where Bob Rock is, you know, walking around and seeing all the the in the zone things or being in the zone and what that actually means. And it's interesting that the movie almost kind of paints the therapist into like the bad guy role at, at one point. Absolutely. From my they absolutely do. Yeah. And what I think is happening at that point is that they're trying to get him to realize that you're not in the band. You're not Metallica because there's one part and I don't know if you, you caught this, but the blue post-it note that the therapist hands, I believe it was to either Bob Rock or to James or Lars, somebody who's sitting like right in front of the console. He hands him a blue note and I think it was handing him a note about lyrics. So it's like, it's time for you to back off. And I understand that you know, he may be trying to help, but, you know, getting him to, you know, realize that you're here to help, but you're not Metallica. So well, you know, I, pump the brakes. I get, I get that. That's another great but, scene where like they actually confront him. like, dude, we heard that you were about to move. Yes. <laughs> to San Francisco. Hold up now. Yeah. And but, then he tries, to, then he tries to doctor them and, you know, twist the words around and, make them realize that, oh, no, I'm not moving here. And, well, you still do need me. And I had this whole plan about, you know, going on the road with you guys and, you know, having performance plans for each one of you and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's when it's like, dude, hold on. You're, you're a therapist. You're a doctor. If I say no, it's yeah, no. That's, that's why they, yeah, that's, I agree. They definitely painted him as like a, a villain toward the end. Yeah. Um, as much as he might have helped them. Zach, you and I were messaging briefly recently about the, um, they essentially did a 10 year anniversary mini documentary about this documentary. I wound up getting bored enough to watch that today. Lars touches on that about how the documentary painted the uh, therapist as a villain. And he just kind of shrugs it off. He's like, yeah, I guess it did. Kind of sucks, but. Sounds like Lars. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I think it was kind of deliberate because otherwise I think Lars winds up looking like the asshole. One thing this movie did for me as a kid was it made these people human, but it kind of made them these caricatures that they still kind of are in my head. Like I, I didn't have Napster. I didn't bother with Napster, but that the fact that Lars is like the Napster guy who brought it down made him the villain when I was a teenager. Watching everything going down with like streaming now, it's kind of right. Um, well, I was about to say it not kind of he yep. absolutely yep. was right. I mean, even quick, like shortly after, I think even around the time that that documentary came out, it was like became pretty clear. It's like, uh, actually, he was right. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And then, there's no yeah. way around it. Like if. Go ahead. No, you were saying. 
You're my guest. I was just going to say, there's no way, there's no way around it. There was people stealing music, you know, at mm. least now when you're not buying an album and you're streaming, you're, you're paying them. If it's half a penny a stream and you listen to that song, like for a week straight, you're paying them something. But it could have been so much more if the industry had just wisened up sooner and found yeah. like it, he was right. Yeah. But you, you were about to say, Daniel. Uh, but it also like created like James as this weird kind of, it basically made him the cartoon in the movie shows James is this big caveman. Lars is the little money grubbing guy. It kind of made James that sort of kind of Hulk like character to me. And then just the other two are the easygoing aloof guys. Like I, I was going to say, it kind of made Kirk into Janice from the electric mayhem. Absolutely. It's like, Hey guy, like I think about two, there's two famous scenes from uh, in the, the the movie that stand out, it's when it's right before James goes to rehab and they have the big blowout um, over just like it being stale and it's Kirk just going, "Hey man, guys, come on, let's just let's just do felt this, guys." Didn't it? It felt like he was bad at acting, and that's and that's like he was being fed those. You lines. know, now that you mention it, it did feel that's probably the only time it felt a little forced. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel the reaction. But I think the the scene, uh, but the moment where James slams the doors, I think was very rare. And I think that's even when the directors were like, "Oh shoot, that this is not <laughs> what we initially thought. We might need to call our wives and say we're not going to come home for another year." Um, but then the other scene, it's the scene when you finally see Kirk mad, and it's the scene when they tell him about maybe we don't do guitar solos. And I just always remember vividly just seeing him like, you know what, though, man, that just that's just BS, man, like. <laughs> I still vividly just remember, like, that's the one thing I remember watching, like, yep, that's just how I remember it, watching it for the first time, just him, like, finally being like, you know what, nope, screw this cool guy thing. And even, he, he, he then finally gave in anyway. I mean, when they play those songs live now, A, they fix the snare, because it's like whatever kit he's playing generally, mm -hmm. and Kirk has a solo. They did a video recently where James introduces it as, this is a song from your favorite album, and they play Frantic, which is fucking hilarious, and then... <laughs> And then Kirk has a solo in it. It's brief, but it's a solo, and it's it's a better song. He was right then. You no, know, yeah. It, this again. Sorry for the shameless plug here, but the very first episode uh, that Matt and I recorded, um, it was a. If you have to pick three episode of albums that should be remastered, and I stand by this, I actually really do think that if you just had a few different rearrangements, and if you just had better production. On Saint Anger. Have you heard the fan read? Would actually be yeah. And I was about to say like, and I think the van the fan re-edit is proof of that too. Is that and even um, the acoustic version that they've been doing of All Within My Hands, mm -hmm. I think is proof that mm -hmm. just some little tweaks here because I'll say this right now, James's vocals on this album do sound phenomenal. I think it's one of his better, like one of his best post mid nineties vocal performances on a Metallica album. He actually, I think you can tell that he put a lot of energy into the vocals. So I, I actually stand by it. If it was just slightly tweaked and remastered, we could have had a much better version of St. Anger. And I, even the title track, I was actually listening to it today just to catch up. I'm like, you know what? This is a good song. It's just the fucking trash can sound. It well, just kind of brought it down. I'm still going to completely disagree with you that this is years later. Yes, all these years later, that this is a re-recording that you're looking for, not a remastering. 
And I say that because Metallica realized they done messed up. Because I remember after St. Anger came out that I got tickets to go see them at the Nassau Coliseum, standing all the way at the very top. I could actually touch the ceiling. And they come out and they start playing frantic with the snare snapped to the snare drum. And immediately it's like, wait a second. This is not the album. This is better. This is so much better. Why didn't they do this? And to replace all the snares on that album, there's no way to do that in post unless you just re-record a snare and you want to spend all that time cutting and pasting, have fun. You're not going to do it. There's I mean, no they can way to do it. <laughs> even they and their engineers, they don't want to do that. That's going to take so much time. Re-record the album and make it better. And like you said with the solos, it sounds better with you know the short solos interluded into the album so to re-record the song is the proper way with the proper snare and the proper solos in the album and maybe clean it up a little bit because you know it's years later and you realize that you know maybe there was a lot of mistakes that we made because of the state of mind that we were in or the the multi-states of mind that we were in depending on if some of the presidio stuff was in place i think you'd have a pretty good album i just think that they realized we done messed up. We got to put the snares on the snare drum and it's going to just sound that much better. It takes it. It honestly takes from like a six to a seven and a half with those snares. I, so going back to the movie real quick, sorry to so, go sidetrack here. I want to talk because Daniel, you mentioned about the bass, yeah. the whole bass drama and how that was something that you really wanted to get out of the movie after, I don't know how many years it's been since you've seen it. Did you find it interesting to rewatch the bass audition process now because i remember at the time i didn't fully realize who pepper keenan was i didn't fully realize who um scott from caius was jordy uh, or even weird well and that was the only name i remember as a kid uh, you know yeah, as a teenager recognizing even but now it's even weirder to watch like it was like oh they dodged a bullet by not getting that guy with all the scandals that he's been oh, in now yeah. um yeah hashtag um <laughs> just hashtag but like just hashtag i don't feel like i'm filling it in so I, sure. and, and matt like and did you guys feel even more like whoa watching that part of the movie well for me watching that part of the movie uh i i, I agree where you have that kind of whoa moment watching it now knowing the metal that you have like in your head because you get to you know all the names there's the guy from jane's addiction that would have been fucking weird. which is also bizarre that he yeah. even auditioned mm-hmm. all the people they got like where work, the hell did that come from there were two but the way they edited it and it might have been editing it could have been actual performances everyone except two people play like shit they sound yep. terrible mm-hmm. it's the woman at the fan party and it's Rob. <laughs> yeah and i wonder if she got a fair shake you they know, they never actually, her... they never yeah, actually, auditioned. Auditioned. that was just more of a fan. <laughs> that was just more of a, Hey, you're great, a fan. Though. Come, but she was great. Yeah. She was fantastic. Well, they... And then Rob mm-hmm. made like laid it down. He played the songs. Well, they're like, Oh, you play real fast with your fingers. Uh, if you're a bassist who plays with your fingers, you're going to play fast. Like I, I do play bass. I prefer to play with a pick. Cause I like the, the like clickier sound, but I could play that fast with my fingers. <laughs> well, the, the, I lo- I was laughing at how awkward it was when James was like, yeah, it's like, Oh, your His fingers, fingers were the picks. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you got it. Good <laughs> job. 
<laughs> a couple things on that one for the recording they got bob rock to play bass that way they could do live tracking live jamming whatnot why didn't kirk or james just play bass on the album like why make bob rock do it every guitarist can play bass I, again i say this as a bassist you do miss something as far as certain things like certain techniques i guess but for metallica album you can just be a rhythm guitarist who plays a, a lower tune guitar it'll be the same <laughs> Maybe you can make the argument that at that time, they, none of them could handle any more extra responsibility. Like they could barely handle giving each other lyric suggestions without he like, and he's just going to lay down like until you take away his guitar pocket. solos. Yeah. Until you take away his guitar solos. Um, but I, I mean, to your point about like the, were the rest of them just bad. I think one thing that going to Pepper Keenan for a second um, in the movie, they make it seem like he was actually auditioning. But if you actually watch, because um, they had some really great bonus features. Because I ended up, of course, I bought the DVD once it was available. And I, I didn't get to watch the bonus features this time around. But I, I remember one of them being, um, they had an outtake of Pepper just chatting with the guys as if you know he was just a friend visiting the studio. And in it, they kind of revealed, and it was him just saying like, guys, you just, you can't just settle. You need to find the right guy. And at some point they kind of like revealed that like, it can't, it kind of slipped that like James and him were hanging or staying, or he was staying at James's place that weekend for watch the Super Bowl. Like, so it kind of made me think like, hmm, I wonder if Pipper was there just to help the band practice auditioning. <laughs> like Thanks. if he was really just a fit, like, cause if you look at the footage of him, he looks like he has no idea what he's doing to your point. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing I wanted to touch on about the, uh, the whole bass audition thing that I alluded to way earlier in this is something that's driven me crazy for, I guess, almost 20 years now. Rob Trujillo is too good for Metallica. He is an unbelievable bassist. And the fact that he's in Metallica, he doesn't get to show it. And further proof of that is at their live shows. I don't know if they make him. I don't know if it's his choice or what the fucking deal is. He goes out and he just plays anesthesia. He plays Cliff Burton's bass solo note for note. He could go out there and play slap bass behind his fucking head and be all over the stage and be something truly amazing. But no, he has to pay tribute to the guy who died 30 years ago, even though he's his own damn person. And it's driven me crazy for so long. And even when he's playing those songs with them, he's like, oh, he makes us a better player. What if you let Rob be Rob and Metallica? I would love to hear that. He doesn't get- You know, it's interesting, it's interesting to say that because I feel like the last few years, and I, I've been kind of chalking up to maybe he just realized that his back's in pain, so he can't do as much of the Spider-Man crawling anymore. But I feel like he's, have you guys noticed that he's been standing up straight more now lately during performances and not as like much of like his like, man, like maneuvering around the stage like he used to in the beginning? Or does that just a bizarre thing that I noticed? It's I, called aging. Yeah, I, I think that A might be you, but it's called the aging. <laughs> aging or... Or I may, to me, it's like kind of going to the idea of like, hey, going back to Kirk now, having suddenly releasing a solo EP and really not contributing anything to uh, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Self I, I, I fear he, Robert, is losing interest and is just kind of showing up because to your point, Dan, yeah, he's a phenomenal basis. He is, it, him being a session player is a, is a disservice because he's such a great bass player. 
he's such a unique player. Like he is a metal version of Fleen almost the way he kind of just slaps and approaches the base. In 2020, Infectious Groove announced a show at the Warfield in San Francisco. Rob was going to be on base. I was planning on going. I was planning on crying to see my man finally free to do what he does. As with so many things, it didn't happen. I would love to see that. I, you know, what happened? Something went around and like just people started just like hiding inside. You know, it's all a hoax, guys, right? Am I right? No, uh, get your <laughs> Sounds like someone from the media. <laughs> but I, he's still, I know, like, based on the fact that show is going to happen, that it's still there. Like, with the wedding band with him and Kirk's, his other, Kirk Hammett's other side thing that's not Metallica, where they just play covers, which is also funny that he gets to do a covered band. Um, they just play, like, covers and stuff. I'm sure he does Rob Trujillo things, but I just, I just want him to be free. Maybe he's happy because, you know, he got a million dollars just for signing on and then all this, like, stock and stuff like that. Oh, my God. Speaking of which. The word stock is such an important word in this movie. When they're <laughs> describing the riffs as stock, I kind of get what he means. But also, I just don't, because then they start screaming stock at each other. What is stock? What does stock mean to you? That's a heavy meaning question, isn't it? And I got um, more that's going to kick in the ass after that. But this one, what uh-oh. does stock mean to you? Matt, I'm going to let you go first so I can collect my thoughts on this emotional question. I think maybe they're... Okay, so for me, when I hear, you know, that sounds like a stock riff, it sounds like something any 14-year-old who went to Guitar Center, picked up a guitar, and just started to play could play. And, you know, at their level, it's probably, you know, this is, you know, what you would hear from just any, you know generic vanilla rock band would play you know that's kind of how i was taking it as they're you know screaming it feels stock to me it just feels regular it feels you know whatever word they chose to say just sounds uninspired it's there you go that's another great word uninspired you know if they didn't there's no feeling to it there's no there's no oomph behind it you know that's probably the best that i can put it's a stock image it's a okay we need just a placeholder here you go Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Matt said it perfectly. Wonderful. Um, one thing, the question I'm going to catch you off guard with is a question they po- they posed in the very beginning of the movie that became a Chekhov's gun for me. Uh, I watched the whole movie because I was like, oh, this is weird. I don't remember them addressing this because they don't. In the very intro of the movie, before they get to the studio, before they do everything, James is sitting in a chair and he's asked, can you describe Metallica in one word? And I knew he, you were going to ask this. And he freezes. I knew it. And uh. they never come back to it. A true documentary would then put that shit at the very end and it tied up in a nice bow. But they don't. Why don't they? <laughs> That's like <laughs> filmmaking 101. It's the unnamed feeling. It, they forgot. That's not one word. But what is one word that describes Metallica? Hmm. Oh, you got it? I got it. Oh, I Matt. got it. Frantic. I almost spilled my drink. <laughs> it's not tick or talk. That's it. Cool. Frantic. Good. Good thing. You know what? I'm going to. So, uh, Matt, you obviously took the Lars, the, uh, the Lars side of this debate. Are you going to say anger? I'm going to take the James. Yeah, the James <laughs> and management side of this debate, anger. 
I love that we were able to tie this into another fun scene <laughs> from this movie. <laughs> I'm going to say anger, actually. Um, and I'm actually kind of serious about that, too. Okay. You're madly in anger, aren't you? Um, I actually, and I, always, I was thinking, like, man, that actually is a good lyric. Because, like, the, and what made, I think kind of goes back to what this album, uh, this movie made me appreciate the album because it re- really captured the anger that they were feeling. It captured... It wasn't just the franticness that they were like experiencing at the time. It really was, they were all, they still had so much baggage and so much anger and hate for what happened, despite all the success that they had, that this was their album that they just were screaming at. And I think if you think about it, like there's a level, anger gets a bad rep in a way in that like, sometimes you need to let loose a little bit and sometimes just blasting a Metallica album at full blast to get that anger out helps. So I'm going to go with anger on that, which makes me sound like a psychopath. Actually. Oh, I don't like that. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but let's uh, (laughs) on what you were saying. One thing I think that was good for them with this album is it's the first time where they had to do presumably it's the first time when they did therapy they had to work out all these feelings and stuff like that. So these are just like disgruntled middle-aged men who have never really talked about their feelings and they're getting it out in this way. So they decided to record it, which is a weird choice, but really they should have been in therapy in the eighties when Cliff died. But you know, like we were talking about when uh, Dave got kicked out of the band, they didn't really have the time to like, let him get his shit figured out. They didn't really have a Mm -hmm. lot of time between Cliff dying and Jason being signed on. They're busy men, you know, they aren't now it's been what five years since hardwired i'm sure that well i mean james has since re-entered and gotten out of rehab again so they've well, got that actually the world a question that kind of leads me a question do do you think they could do i mean i that uh 10 minute short that was on netflix too they kind of make it sound like it's a sequel to some kind of monster but do you think they could there's enough to have happened since some kind of monster came up to justify doing another type of documentary like that and um, other I mean, kind you of can monster. argue the other kind of like you know the monster conti- the monster's back like you can make the arguments like well listen james went back to rehab and they canceled a bunch of fe- like there's gotta have been something behind this or even just i mean i don't know about you guys but i almost kind of would love to see how they each handled the quarantine phase of like just them suddenly having to pause on everything and then them trying to figure out how to salvage the time that they have back whether it's because i know that lars was saying that they tried to record remotely and that didn't work and just like i'd love like uh, do you think that could be as fascinating or even as could they be as bearing as they were in 2001 2002 2003 when they were making this documentary today i mean some people could look at it and be like oh well here we go again and you know how much more can you say about you know, well, he went back to rehab. Okay, well, we're not going to see what happened for him during rehab. And, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting, like you said, to see how they handle the pandemic, but we also don't know a lot of what they've got planned. Maybe there is something that's going to happen. Like, I know that for Death Magnetic, they did a whole making of the album that it looks very much so like like the St. Anger uh, making of, but the it just wasn't put out the same way it it looks and feels like and i went to youtube a couple times because i was just away from um 
you know, Netflix and, and whatnot. And I just wanted to see if I could find some choice clips and some of the choice clips from St. Anger. And I kept getting Death Magnetic. I was like, well, what is this? And like, oh, they're talking about Death Magnetic. Okay, that's that thing. So who knows what they've got planned for the next album. Maybe they do have something else that's not advertised right now in the works. And maybe we'll get a taste of that. But then again, how many people want to see this type of documentary all over again? I wouldn't mind. I'm wondering if they, because they're a band that records every show they put out. There's cameras on them all the time when they're playing. They have the technology they travel with. Maybe they're, they have been recording this whole time, and there's probably some secret editor there who's trying to piece something together. But because they put out an album every six years, and then they basically just go out and tour in short bursts, maybe there's nothing there. Maybe this rehab thing is the only thing that they have. I would love, honestly, here's something I think about with Metallica a lot, and I would love to see them actually address full on. James is famously a recovering alcoholic. He's been to rehab twice that we know of. They are also a band that sells their Good own point. branded whiskey. Uh, and it's it's like the name of their label. It's it's at every show. It's They put so much of that whiskey in front of people. How, as like people, do they deal with that like capitalizing on something that one of the one of the core members has been struggling with i would love to see them face that head on in like a segment of this thing because of course it'll also ultimately wind up being an ad for the the whiskey but like that could be very interesting i would love to hear thoughts on it i would i don't know james thoughts on it i am so i have some friends who are a little like who know people who are close with the management and the thing i kind of get a get from it is that they view the band views it as not just the Metallica whiskey. Like they almost would love it to be like its own side venture that like they can make it have it become its own identity. Granted, it's a little hard when you're marketing it as whiskey that was created by a playlist of Metallica songs um, and the vibrations insane, which isn't whether that's real or just good marketing. Best marketing ever. Sure. <laughs> Best, yes. Um, Especially but, when they have the different playlists for the different batches that they make, so it's supposed to quote taste different. Yeah. Is, does I the Metallica mean, one ta- or the Saint Anger one taste tinny? Probably. Uh, Rusty, yes, maybe. Very, very much so metallic. <laughs> but like, I, I think, I wonder if it all comes down to like, in the end of the day, they know that it's a business. They know that like that they have to you know there's certain things that they need to do to make money and this is one of them i don't know well it's not something they have to do to make money it's something that they choose to do to make money yeah and james and i i find it interesting that and it would be from the perspective of you know a recovering alcoholic to see what it's like for him trying to put together this whiskey project or side venture whatever you want to call it and then having to actively have a playlist that he is quote infusing into the whiskey because that was one of the marketing things that they did is each one of the band members put together a playlist to have pumped into the the whiskey and you know i wonder if james had to a taste the whiskey to figure out if i'm sure he didn't taste it i'm sure you don't know i don't know i'm sure this is one unfortunately Actually, maybe, yeah, uh, he, maybe that's what got us where it is. That he you tasted never know. it. I would believe that. I wouldn't be surprised if he's like just literally his photos on it. 
I don't know. I mean, you could also make the argument that maybe it's him realizing, like, you know what? Because this is kind of goes back to when Alice Cooper got sober um, in the 70s. He said the first thing that he did after leaving rehab was he went to a bar and he ordered a Coca-Cola. And he did it because he knew that he, in his business, he is surrounded by alcohol. And he needs to learn how to cope as a sober person around that. And it kind of goes back to the movie where you definitely saw James a little nervous about going back on the road and like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, part of it being like, you know, am I ready to be faced with that? Or if, uh, you know, so, I mean, who knows? Also, we don't really know. And this is where a documentary today could be interesting as to what actually did lead him back to rehab. Yeah. Was it, did he actually have a relapse? Was it just, you know what he need, he was, ha- he just needed a check, a, a tune up it, or it, or maybe it really was somehow the well-oiled machine forgot to ask James, Hey, are you available May 13th to do a <laughs> festival? And they forgot to ask it. Then he was like, no, I have a sobriety event that I must attend. Like, who knows? They really were kind of like vague about it to a certain degree, which is also very unlike Metallica, at least post some kind of monster. Because I think they've done a decent job at like, since the documentary coming out, being a lot more like, hey, listen, this is what's going on behind the scenes. This is what we were thinking about. As far as we know, who knows? Maybe they've done a great job of creating a Wizard of Oz, like, don't look behind the curtain. This is what we want you to see. Yeah, I was just going to say- I mean, it's also a very sensitive topic. Yeah, but sorry, Dan, you were about to say? I was just going to say like, you're, we, we keep coming back to the, the rehab thing. And then, uh, I don't know, I guess we could see if Lars wants to weigh in on streaming stuff, but like the idea of Metallica hiding things behind a curtain, like maybe that's what they've been doing. But since this movie, even though like hardwired, hardwired's fine, you know, it was, I liked it. Yeah. But like, I still like it. It's not like the top five. It's, no. it's basically, it's, it's giving Metallica a reason to go out and play the old songs and still make millions of dollars, make people happy. Same with um, Death Magnetic. Cool. There hasn't really been tragedy in the same way or heaviness in the same way that we know of. So maybe that's what the next documentary is, is a peek behind the curtain. This is all the shit they've been hiding. So uh, I think we're due in two years for the 20th anniversary of the movie. Let's reconvene then. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it it kind of goes back to my realization earlier, how it kind of freaked me out that to realize the timing of when that movie came out. Because again, it, it goes back to how so much happened in the band's life from 1981 to when that documentary was starting to film. And yes, you can argue, I mean, they've done amazing things since some kind of monster. They are still the most huge band in the world, but nothing monumental, earth shattering, like Master of Puppets or the Black Album. Nothing like even James lighting himself, getting lit on fire on stage. Like that level of drama, unless if, Again, maybe there is stuff that we don't know about, or maybe when Lars got sick at Download Fe- uh, Fest in 2004, yeah. that was a bigger deal than they let on to be and let on to believe. So, I mean, it, it just kind of was mind blowing to think about like how much a band can do in a certain period of time. You just take that for granted. Also, to make you guys feel old, yes. Um, within i think it was like the first 10 minutes of the movie 
we see Lars's son, who was, I think, two or three at the time. I said this to my wife. He's like, you know, oh, and he just like comes up playing the drums. That kid is now in a band. Yeah. He's now playing, actually on stage playing, opening up for, I think, White Reaper recently. Like, like, oh my God, he's an adult now. Well, doesn't this also make Rob Trujillo the longest tenured bass player in Italica since he's been in the yes, band since 2003? It absolutely does. More reason why it, it makes me mad he doesn't get his own solos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, gentlemen, final thoughts on some kind of monster. Final thoughts, some kind of monster. I guess we could, we've kind of turned this into a 50-50 St. Anger thing. Uh, fix the <laughs> snare, shorten them up, make solos, cool, fan edit, St. Anger's handled. Uh, how was revisiting this thing for you guys almost 20 years later? I, I loved it. <laughs> I I really enjoyed enjoy revisiting it again. Uh, I still think it holds up as a interesting look into a massive band on the verge of breakup. Um, I also think it was the first time I really felt like I saw a nost. Like when you kind of think of what you what a '90s film looks like, it's like it looked like okay, this is what a, a movie from 2001. I know it came out in 2004, but like. This is what a movie from 2001 looks like. It looked, it, I was not prepared for how vintage looking it kind of looked and felt at a certain time. It's just for it three aspect bar- ratio. That's all it is. It's just, four three. That? it's just the four, three aspect ratio. That's all it was. It, maybe it was weird to see so many MTV news segments. And it was like, oh, that oh, felt missed, so good. I missed seeing Sway. that. Oh, I loved <laughs> Oh, I, I missed seeing the, the, the serious Carson Daly looking guy. Uh, not Carson, like the Kurt guy who Loder? looked like Carson Daly, but it was no, yeah, it was Kurt the guy Loder. who they were grooming to replace Kurt Loder, not Sway, not, no, Sway. not Sway, <laughs> not Sway. Um, it was literally a guy who looked like Carson Daly, but like, but with Kurt Loder's seriousness, sure. I know who um, you're talking about, I don't know his name, yeah, though. no one does, he's gone. Um, but like, it was and like, so oh, music I remember on MTV. watching, I remember watching, I loved seeing those MTV news like random bits and i remember being oh this is like it was such a nostalgic trip for me that and it was as interesting as i remembered it being the first time i watched matt final thoughts some kind of monster i think it was great to revisit it but it's you know one of those places that you go to just on vacation you know you can never you know on a friday night just say oh i'm gonna throw on some kind of monster but it is a great look into what we used to think of mental health that's what it is it's really a story of mental health mixed in with a band struggling and sprinkling in a making of an album and it's great to see what where we were and how far we've come because it really is important um to talk about issues and get to the root of problems you know with anybody who's going through anything mentally or you know maybe even deeper with like alcoholism but you know to see where that you know where the stigma was back then and then where we are now that's you know it's great to see that we've made big strides there but from uh metallica's point of view it's also you know great to see that you there the people of the world who you think have it so great they don't it's just everybody puts on that fake great face like that's what you know facebook and instagram are all about 
but it's you know interesting to see that that was alive and well way before that stuff was a thing and just to see metallica go through something like that it's like you know what if these guys with all their millions and millions and millions of dollars are having all of these issues you know what there is still hope for for somebody like me you know maybe i don't have it as bad as i think you know because i remember i was in a struggling band and i put that on uh back in the early 2010s i was like mm, okay you know what? we don't have it so bad we just you know we bicker a little bit and that's about it these guys have way more issues than we do and i just think that you know it's it's an interesting glimpse into that era of metallica and how i guess just you know how they overcame it to make you know whether it's a great album or a polarizing album or whatever we think about it they made an album that was representative of them at that time and they were they're proud of it can i also i do want to add one more thing also um kind of it was going back to the idea of nostalgia to watch it, it the timing of this was kind of nice in that um i wasn't sure if i was going to bring this up but uh so johnny zazula johnny z passed away recently right um and it was kind of nice to watch this because this is around the time that uh i, I went to high school with his daughter blair um i got to know the zazulas and if if you're listening to this podcast you already know the influence that both Johnny and Marsha had in Metallica's rise to fame. Um, and just kind of watching this brought me back memories of getting to meet the Zulas as well. And because it was right around this time that then Johnny and Marsha took me to my first, or sorry, Johnny took me to my first Metallica concert. He actually was the reason why I got to meet the band because he brought us backstage. It was the first time that he had gone to see the band in many years. So it, it was kind of a nice little tie just watching this and bringing just back memories to that time period as well. Kind of to your point, Daniel, of the, this was the first Metallica, new Metallica album for you. It, it just kind of brought back some fond, good memories. Well, Matt, Zach, thank you for being on Farther Beyond Metal. This was a lot of fun. I feel like we honestly kind well, of- no. You got it. What about you? What, what, about what my are your thought? final thoughts? Uh, I mean, I already Come screamed. That I still am upset about Robert Trujillo. Um, what else we got? Uh, yeah, watching it again, I, I do feel like there is a really interesting thing that they were ahead of the curve on. Because to kind of uh, like make this personal, I am in a fairly new band and we had some issues with one of our members recently. And if we would have just communicated in a way that was actually like beneficial, we could have ironed them out a lot easier. Instead, we made the mistake of basically firing the guy and then he got mad mm. and then we talked it out and now we're great. Um, I feel like if Metallica would have done that with Jason, maybe Jason would still be in the band, but they learned that too late. Uh, and I think this is the first time that I can think of when a band, no matter who it is, metal or not, they just kind of we're talking about feelings in a way that made them more human because like even still there's so much posturing in metal that's just gross and it's this very machismo thing and it doesn't have to be and the fact that the biggest metal band of all time isn't really that way i think is really important and that is overlooked because like jason says in the movie having to talk about your feelings and whatnot is i think his phrase is fucking lame or something I think he's even on the wrong side of it. Like mm -hmm. they could have talked out with him. If he would have also not been resistant, they could have figured it out. But like, 
I think that's a good thing about this movie now is that it's also kind of in the time we're in where people are more open about how they're feeling. Uh, this, like in the, the brief documentary, someone apparently approached Lars and told him that like that aspect of it is really important to the, the band, whatever band this was, they didn't name them, but I, I do think that's really cool about this movie. Uh, I, you know, I think of St. Anger fondly because of nostalgia, nostalgic reasons. Uh, I was listening to the songs in the movie and like, I was like, oh shit, I want to go listen to Dirty Window right now. Why do I want to listen to Dirty Window right now? And then I did. And it was wonderful. Nobody wants to listen to Dirty Window. <laughs> uh, I did. And it was wonderful. I went back and listened to some songs today. I'm like, yeah, this is better than I remembered. Uh, so like I I would love if they did maybe you know if it's not a full documentary if they did uh, something in two years because they did the ten year thing that was basically just an ad for Through the Never which by the way guys mm -hmm. we should probably do a follow up to this of Through the Never yes please focusing yes please only focusing only on the storyline part forget the of, song. Course. of course of course <laughs> the James, James Hange sign anyway what we'll, we'll figure you it out tell us when and we will make it happen fantastic. Uh, I actually have done a podcast about that movie before. I would happily do it again because it's, uh, it's please. So, I was uh, even con considering suggesting we do that. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's let's stick to one movie for now because uh, I have so many one. thoughts about that as well. If we need to go so back to your, about that movie. we need to go, we need to go back to your feed for that. We can, but <laughs> we can also do a farther, consider it down. Cool. <laughs> call it a farther beyond epic uh, footnote production metal. Far too epic. Far. Bam. This is why you get the big bucks. Uh, so Ooh. that. So uh, I have just pages and pages of notes on these, which I will just rattle off when we're done. But um, <laughs> listeners, thank you for listening. Guys, thank you for being on. This has been some kind of monster. And uh, yeah, so I will, of course, link to the look in the episode description for finding this podcast. They're on all the socials. Could you please provide the listeners with the exact URLs and what have you? Oh, my goodness. Too HTTP many. Too many. So. Slash www dot and then take it from here. I mean, you can, find us, you can find us on Friendster. On Friendster. Um, you know MySpace these days? Do you have MySpace? an LO? We have, yeah, we have our top eight that offends everybody on the daily. <laughs> nice. But uh, honestly, if you go to our, uh, our, link tree, uh, our link tree URL, it's just linktree slash epic footnote. Also, if you look at any social media platform, it's usually just at epic footnote. Follow us on our socials. We maybe post maybe too often our links to our episodes uh get you know listen to our stuff on youtube subscribe any like we really can't emphasize any streaming platform we are probably on there if you just look up epic footnote productions yep and we are pro you'll probably find an episode that will annoy you or maybe delight you no promises <laughs> a lot of people tend to go toward the radiohead one yeah hint hint or greta van fleet okay but that's another discussion <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you guys for being but, on. Uh, yes. And thank you for having us. This was so thank much fun. Thank you. A catbox production. Uh, I'll do a proper intro later, but uh, I'm going to butter you guys up a little bit here at the top. Uh, oh, before we, we fully start, Gamba? Gamba? Gamba. Gamba. Cool. Like Gamma, but not quite. Groovy. And, and the way you pronounce my name is Dickhead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting spelling. Is that uh, Gaelic? I'm dyslexic. I don't know. Sure. It's it's Nordic, I believe. Nordic. Metal. <laughs> <laughs>
Maybe I'll just go to the intro and not, I'm not again. Why edit? Uh. <laughs> you get to see me squirm during this part. <laughs> Greetings, folks. Welcome to Far. Be- nope, already fucked it up. Greetings, folks. <laughs> welcome- 